Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you that in your eternal goodness, grace and mercy, you have called people like ourselves to you, people who are sinful and rebellious and deserving of your judgment, yet we have received mercy upon mercy, and this we know because you sent your one and only Son to come into this world, to live as a perfect man, and to die a death not that he deserves, but one that we deserve, but that he dies in our place to take upon our sins on himself. And we thank you that in his glorious resurrection, our sins have been dealt with, death has been defeated, that we can be brought into your family to be able to stand right before you, adopted as your children. We pray that each time we gather as Christians, we will never fail to remember your glorious grace and mercy in the gospel, and that we will never fail to think about how that should impact the way that we live. For we pray that we will live in ways that glorify you, knowing that our lives belong to you, that our lives are in service of our Lord and Master and Savior, Jesus Christ. Right now, as we prepare to hear your word again, please make your word come alive in us. Help us to understand in our minds, to be convicted in our hearts, and to show with our lives uh, that we believe in Jesus and that we live for him. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, all over the world, uh, on Sunday, today, uh, there'll be people who will walk out of church and they will say to the person standing next to them, wasn't worship simply great today? Right? Wasn't worship simply great today? Uh, maybe you've said it before sometime in your life as you walked out of church. Uh, and I kind of wonder, what do people mean when they say that? Right? Wasn't worship great today? Now, most likely, when Christians say things like that, they mean that somehow the singing in particular was a bit extra special. You know, maybe they're from a more lively church and, and uh, they, they felt more spiritually connected. There was a sense of the divine transcendence that descended on the building during that service. But for the others who are a bit more on the conservative side, maybe it was that solemnity, that ability to be able to have a quiet, very serene, worshipful experience that caused them, as they walk out the door, to say, wasn't worship great today? Right? It's often to do with that, isn't it? The sort of spiritual feeling, atmosphere, singing, maybe the way that the worship leader led or the sermon was preached. And we think worship in church looks like that. Now, worship is a big deal, isn't it, for Christians? It's a, a beautiful word. It's a big word. And it's something that we're serious about. And rightly so. Now, when we come to the Bible, the Bible talks a lot about worship. And, and I think nowhere more so and more clearly than in Romans 12 to Romans 15 the passages that we've been looking at for the past few weeks. The reason for that is that I know it's about worship is because Romans 12, verse 1 and 2 tells us right, that in light of God's mercy, we are to offer up our lives as living sacrifices in worship to God. It's a beautiful verse that summarizes the first half of Romans. The mercies of God is a beautiful way to describe the gospel of Romans 1 to 11, Right? The gospel which says that every Jew, every Gentile is a sinner in the sight of God. And the way we've lived our lives, the way we've treated God, we are sinful, rebellious, and deserving of His just judgment and condemnation. But because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, because of the grace being poured out to us, because of the mercy that God shows to undeserving sinners, it's a beautiful way to say, in light of God's mercies, chapter 1 to 11, we are to worship. Chapter 12. 15, right? Worship is the response to the gospel because the gospel tells us that we were once dead in our sin, but we've now been made alive in Christ and our lives belong to God. 
And the only real response, proper response, reasonable response, spiritual response, is to live our lives in worship to God. And we've seen this in chapter 12 to 15. And worship in chapter 12 to 15, if you haven't noticed, is entirely relational. If you read again chapter 12, verse 1 onwards, it's entirely about relationships. So if I remind you of what we had said a couple of weeks back, Romans 12, verse 1 to 13, is about how we treat people inside the church with genuine love and service and humility. Then chapter 12, verse 14 to 21, is how we treat people outside the church, even to the point of loving our enemies, right? loving those who persecute us. Chapter 13, last week, we, is about how we worship God in the way we treat our earthly rulers. I'm sure you never thought about the fact that submitting to your earthly rulers is an act of worship. Because it's about how we treat people in the world. Now, as we now turn to chapter 14, we're still talking about worship. We're talking about worship within the church. We come back, right? As Steve talked about last week, there's a bit of a bracket, right? Love in the church, love in the world, and then back to love in the church. But this time, Paul homes in on a particular issue in this Roman church in a way to give us a very real-life, practical example of worship in the way that Christian brothers and sisters relate to each other. Now, to be able to understand this chapter properly, we need to do a bit of background work, and so this introduction is going to be a bit longer, right? Let me explain what's going on. Now, the Roman church, so I'm trying to imagine, Roman church, Rome, first century AD, was made up predominantly of Gentile believers, right? Gentile means non-Jews. And the reason for that is because it's firstly in Rome, so it's an Italian place, right? So that's non-Jew. But also because the previous emperor, Claudius, had kicked out all the Jews for causing a fuss, basically, in the city. And then when Nero, the next emperor, came into power, he allowed the Jews back in, and they slowly started to integrate back into this largely Gentile church. Now, as you read these chapters, it's very clear that they are believers, right? They are regular members of that church, we can tell that they desire to worship God, all of them, right? They're genuine believers who earnestly have a desire to worship God. But there was a problem between these two groups, right? There a problem uh, that we see addressed in these chapters. And there are areas of kind of non-essential practices and customs that the Jews had, which they were arguing and fighting about. Now, we need to be very clear about this, right? There are non-essential issues to do something with the Old Testament that the Jews were really on about that caused the Gentiles and the Jewish Christians to argue about. This isn't like Galatia. If you read the book of Galatians, opening chapter, Paul straight away condemns those who distort and destroy the gospel. Now, it's not like that. When it comes to gospel, central gospel issues, judgments do need to be made, and there needs to be right and wrong, a division. It is not like in Corinth, right? Corinthian church, another problem church, where there were real big problems with godliness, idolatry, sexual immorality. In that situation, where there's clear, ungodly, sinful behaviors, you've got to call it out. You've got to condemn, and you've got to call people to repentance, right? So Rome church, not the same, right? Disputable, non-essential matters, unlike the other churches which had gospel and sin issues. In Rome, it's about the practices and customs from the Old Testament, which the Jewish Christians, even though they come to know Christ, still felt they had to obey to show their honor for God. So you read the passage, it's about those, all this food and drinking stuff. It's not about like healthy food or yummy food. It's about religious foods. In the Old Testament laws, there were certain foods that they were allowed to eat or not eat to show that they were different from the nations around them. There are holy days that the Old Testament people observed to show that they were 
celebrating specific events in their calendar, right, which they had to set aside and do. So what, these, these Jewish Christians, they would condemn the Gentile Christians for not doing these Old Testament laws, customs, practices. On the other hand, we see the, the, the Gentile Christians would look down on these Jewish Christians for not knowing that in Christ we are free. Now, it's important to say that the Gentiles are correct. Okay? The Gentiles were right to say that Christians are free from these Old Testament customs and practices because Jesus said so. Right? Mark 7, many of you may know, Jesus declared all foods clean. Cha siu pao, right? Ha kao, you know, all those things, siu mai, all can eat. Okay? Thank goodness for that as Asians. Right? Feng zhao, you know, like, okay, all the stuff you couldn't eat in the Old Testament, but New Testament you can, right? They were right to understand that Jesus explained that there was okay. And then they are the strong, okay, in this chapter. When, when, when Paul talks about the strong, he's talking about the Gentile Christians who understood the freedoms. And Paul himself puts himself in that category. He's part of the strong. The weak in faith in this chapter isn't a weakness in faith in Jesus. It's a weakness in faith in their conscience to be able to know the freedoms they have in Christ in regards to these non-essential matters, right? Now, so Paul in these chapters is addressing the strong mainly, but he's also addressing the weak and trying to get them to figure out how to live in worship because at the end of the day, worship is about relationships, right? And there are two key principles that we're going to see in this chapter and a half. The first is this. Whether you're strong, whether you're weak, whether you're Jew, whether you're Gentile, all believers are to have a thoroughly welcoming mindset towards each other, right? A thoroughly welcoming mindset to each other, first principle. Second principle is that we have to actively serve other people in their faith. First, by not hindering them, but also by building them up, right? So welcoming and serving, okay? This is the two big points we'll see here about how worship is expressed, So let's get into the passage, right? Long intro, let's get into it. Now, Paul tells the strong in verse 1, right? To the strong, I tell you, welcome the weak brother or sister and don't quarrel over these issues. Right? To welcome is a beautiful word. It's to accept someone in. Don't you love it when you go to someone's house and then you get to the front door and there's a mat on the floor and it says welcome on it? Anyone notices that? Oh, you don't care. You just like rub, rub, rub and walk in. Now, if you have a welcome sign, make sure you're pointing it outwards, right? Otherwise, people don't feel very welcome, you know, if it's like the other way around. But, you know, a welcoming mat followed by an open door, you kind of feel like you belong there, right? You can walk in and share in the family, share in the fellowship. Uh, the old English word for welcome, which is welcome, uh, actually literally means a person whose coming is pleasing. It's, it's saying, I'm happy to see you. I'm happy to have you. I'm pleased to have you in my family and in my fellowship. You know, how welcome will you think you'll be if you're seeking to always argue with someone? If you're always thinking that you're right about this and they're wrong about that, and you're always thinking, oh, I'm going to try and fix them and change their mind. I always wanted to pick a fight. How welcoming an attitude do you think you're going to have if that's the way you think of other believers? And so Paul says to the strong, welcome and don't argue. Now, the weak here are certainly mistaken, right? They don't understand. That's for sure. But being right and being wrong in these issues, in these matters, doesn't matter as much as welcoming each other. Being right and wrong about these matters doesn't matter as much as welcoming each other. And so he says to the strong, welcome your weak brothers. 
And to the weak, Paul says, don't judge, right? The, the weak believe that the strong are disobeying God's Old Testament customs and commandments, and they want to stand in judgment, right, over these strong people. But Paul says, who are you to judge the one that God has welcomed? Who are you to say guilty to the one that God has accepted and declared innocent? Now, this is the first reason that Paul gives for his instruction, right? Now, in this chapter, you'll see that there's instruction, reason, instruction, reason, right? That's why the outline is structured that way. There's instructions and the reasons. This is the first of many reasons why we ought not to judge or despise another brother or sister, whether they're strong or weak. And the first reason is because God has first welcomed us. We ought to regard everyone in the church the way God regards everyone in the church. And how, has, how does God regard us? Has he not accepted us through our faith in Jesus Christ? Has he not seen what Jesus has done on the cross because he gave Jesus to die on the cross for us in order to bring us into his family, to adopt us as his children? Now, that is how God has welcomed us. Ought we not to welcome each other in the same way? Every single believer in the church has been welcomed by God through Jesus. Who are you and who am I to be unwelcoming to anyone. How dare we reject a person that God has accepted? How is it possible that we can despise or condemn or judge someone that God has declared innocent and guilty? Now, this is the heart of being a true believer, right? And over and over, we are reminded again that the, the entire commandments of God, what it means to glorify God and worship Him, is to love God and love others. And sometimes we love God by loving others, which is why love and, and humility. And with that comes this welcoming spirit of each other. This, this graciousness is truly the mark of a true believer, of a Christian. And so as those of us who are welcomed by God, if you're a believer, you're welcomed by God, you and I must remove the kind of critical disapproving, divisive attitudes and behaviors that we so often see in our churches, in our own relationships with each other. Now, some of us here have been Christians for maybe a few months. Uh, yes, actually, in the first service, I met someone who became a Christian three weeks ago. So also, right? Some of you have been Christians a few months, some a few years, some maybe a few decades. Not many, probably only one. Amanda, I see you. Don't hide. All right, me too, me too. I've been a Christian in like three decades. All right, so. Now, I want you to remember, think about how long you've been a Christian. And I want you to ask, uh, to be honest with yourself and ask yourself these questions. Have you welcomed every brother and sister, all of the brothers and sisters that you've met in your years as a Christian in the way that God has welcomed them? Have you welcomed every single brother and sister in a way that God has welcomed them and welcomed you? How much effort have you put in to having a deeply welcoming attitude towards people? Think about the way you walked into church just today. Did you come prepared to accept and receive other people? How much have you grieved when you have failed? Because I know for sure that every single one of us fails to have the same kind of welcoming attitude, the same kind of love that God has. It's, it's almost impossible for us. It is impossible for us. And so we have failed. The issue is how much grief have you felt in failing to do that? 
And the final question then is, how repentant have you been when you have sinned in this area? How sorry and how willing and how much effort have you put into changing the unwelcome attitudes that are in your heart and in your actions? That's, good. That's important questions to reflect on, isn't it? If we want to be living out this, this welcoming attitude that we are called to have. Now, it's next to impossible to be welcoming when we take on the role as judge over others. Because the nature of being welcoming is that we're all horizontally connected, right? But if you want to stand above someone, then you judge someone, it's really hard to have a welcoming attitude. So Paul gives us a second reason. That none of us are masters over anyone else. Only Jesus is our master. Right? It is to the Lord Jesus that every single one of us will have to give an account to. It is before Him alone that we stand or fall. That's what Paul's saying, right? And the amazing thing that Paul is saying in verse 4 is, in Jesus, do we stand or do we fall? He tells us that Jesus is able and does make every one of us stand. If we are a believer, we stand before Jesus, before God. Let's not tear anyone else down because we stand before God. Now, Paul then goes on to say something really helpful in verse 5 to 8. Our genuine believers are sincerely really trying to please their master. Verse 5. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all day alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who fully observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, who doesn't eat, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. Now Paul is talking about the people he's writing to. That they have this common mindset, right? We're reminded again that Paul is talking to committed believers. Jewish Christians, Gentile Christians, he's saying that in their heart of hearts, they are Christians. And they're all seeking to honor God out of thanksgiving to God. Out of knowing that they have died to their old lives and now they are alive to God. Can you see that in this passage? I'm not saying that every believer who claims to be believers is like that. He's saying that in this church, he is fully convinced that all of them are trying to live for their Lord Jesus Christ. Right? They're doing it in honor of God, out of response of thanksgiving. They are servants wanting to please and serve and live for their Lord. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was to be able to say that about our church, and I reckon I am able to say that about our church, isn't that a wonderful thing? For me and for you to be able to look around our church and say, yes, all those who profess faith here seem to be genuine in wanting to serve Jesus. That's just a wonderful thing for us to be able to, to say about each other and to, and to rejoice in. And in our community, I, I really don't know anyone who, who is a real faker. I mean, you might be, but I can't tell. And it seems that everyone seems to be a committed and keen, faithful and fervent Christian for those who call on Jesus. We have our struggles, for sure. Yet, it is so easy, isn't it, when we disagree with one another that we not only disagree with what people say or what they decide or what they do, but we also then question their motives. And we say, you know that person, huh? Really doesn't want to love God. Really wants to damage the church. 
Now, all of you here are young people, you probably won't say that yet, but wait till you get a bit older, you get more mature in the faith. And you might start to want to not just disagree with people's actions and decisions, you want to also tarnish their motivation because it's easier, isn't it, to go up against someone if they're your enemy, if you can say that the entirety of who they are is bad. And so not only do we play the ball, we also play the man, you know, that, that analogy. And we mustn't do that. Right? Just because we have disagreements on non-essential, disputable matters doesn't mean that the other person isn't trying to be a faithful believer. Right? Now, over the years, um, and I've been in the church for quite a, a lot of years, and been in other churches as well, I have seen godly men and women yell across church halls over the methods of baptism, whether it should be by adult immersion or whether it can be by sprinkling, or whether it should be children. I remember one time, I won't tell you how long ago, because you can probably figure out who it is, but I think there was one person there, and one person in this very hall. And I was a pretty young kid then, looking in amazement, horror, I should say, at these two people who I respected going at each other. Over the years, I've seen in elders' meetings and, and council meetings, people argue and get riled up over the frequency of how we take the Lord's Supper. Should it be weekly, fortnightly, monthly? The Lord's Supper, right? A symbol of our fellowship in Christ. They're arguing about how often we should take it. I've heard people accuse others of worldliness and questioning people's sexual orientation based on tattoos and and ear and nose rings and hairstyles. I have observed the look of disgust of people as someone walks in the door wearing something that they didn't approve of. And I hope you've never experienced that. And even more so, I hope you've never done something like that. And I hope you never will. For those things, I think, go against what it means to have a welcoming attitude towards others. On these non-essential, disputable matters, we really shouldn't be engaging in, in these issues like that, with this kind of quarreling and condemning and divisive behavior. Now, it doesn't mean that we can't discuss these issues. The fact is that there is strong and there's a weak position, correct? And Paul would say that some things are more correct than others when it comes to these disputable matters. So there can be a discussion to be had, for we hope that the weak will end up understanding what is true and strong in that sense. But you can see how it has to be done in a loving, gracious, and welcoming way. And regardless of how that discussion ends up, we should continue to be welcoming and gracious and understanding even if we end up disagreeing. For at the end of the day, who is our Lord? Who is our judge? It is only Jesus. So I have to take care of my business before God, and I have to allow you to take care of your business before God. Now, so this Paul's first instruction, right? Welcome. Welcome, don't argue, don't judge. And it's kind of a, kind of a more passive instruction, isn't it? You, you know, welcome is to receive people in, and then don't argue and don't judge. But the second lot of instructions, as we see from chapter 14, verse 13 onwards, is rather more proactive, right? It's about going out to serve others in their faith. And he kind of gives two commands related to serving others in their faith. One is a negative command. Don't ever hinder someone's faith. Don't ever stumble them. And then the positive command, please and build them up, right? Seek to please them and build them up, right? So, now, as we said before, clearly there's a problem with the strong. They are the ones causing the issue. They seem to be the ones who are insisting and pressing their freedoms on the weak. 
They know stuff, and they're probably right, and they're somehow making the weak follow along, even though the weak didn't want to. It could be, say, food, when it comes to the, the foods that they weren't sure about, it's maybe, you know, every time there's church, they purposely bring char siu pao, right? They purposely bring siu yolk, all right? They don't even provide anything that's beef. It's only just pork, only prawns, only lobster. No problems, right? Okay, but to the Jewish Christians, got a problem. And maybe, not only were they bringing out all these foods, maybe they were even coercing these uh, Jewish Christians who were not sure about this stuff to eat. Maybe even goading them. We're not sure. We're not told. All we are told is some pretty strong instructions from Paul, where he says, never, ever put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of your brother or sister. Just don't do it. Right? Paul urges us to see that there are so much more important things in our community as Christians than food. And by food, I put it in inverted commas, right? Food and all these freedoms that we have as Christians. And firstly, reasons, right? Three reasons. Firstly, family is more important than food. Relationship is more important than rights. Verse 15. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. You know, our Christian family, and when I say that, I want you not to think of it as just me talking, but look around you. Our Christian family has been brought together at the ultimate cost of the Son of God. It was not easy for us to be called brothers and sisters adopted into God's family. The fact that we are God's family, brothers and sisters in Christ, should cause us to prize our family relationships over just about anything else, especially these food and freedom-related things. Why let those things destroy our family relationships that we have in God? The second thing is that matters of the kingdom of God are much greater than matters of food. Matters of the kingdom, far greater than, sorry, greater, whichever way it looks right? Than matters of food. Verse 16. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Now, food is everything to the master chef contestant, okay? For them, food is their idol, it's their dream, it's their purpose in life. Of course, it's massive for them. But for kingdom dwellers, for Christians, food is trivial. And once again, by food, I mean matters of freedom. They're trivial. So who cares? about frequency of communion taking? Who really cares about how we dress? I mean, God cares about modesty, right? But in terms of traditional Sunday best, you know, have you heard that, Sunday best? You've got to wear your best suit, your best dress. It matters of hairstyle, it matters of tattoos and where you can go to drink, you drink alcohol or not. There's a lot of areas of life which, which, which are just trivial, compared to matters of the kingdom. And what are the matters of the kingdom? Well, it tells us here, isn't it? Matters of the kingdom are things to do with righteousness, how we live, 
It's about living at peace with God and with, with each other. It's about having the joy of the Spirit that dwells in and amongst us. Matters of the kingdom are about building each other's faith in Jesus. This is what the kingdom of God is about. These are the massive, the major, the important issues that should we be focusing on instead. Why elevate these areas of dispute and freedom to such levels of importance? Why label each other right and wrong, good and bad, based on those trivialities? Why let it destroy our joy and peace? And finally, Paul says, why let food destroy each other's faith? The faith of our fellow brothers and sisters is far, far more important than food. Look again at verse 15, right? The second part of it. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. And then again in verse 20, do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. Now, I don't know about you, but when you read this passage for the first time, you're probably thinking, how can me eating food destroy my brother or sister's faith? Right? It's a bit exaggerated, it would seem. Right? If I eat something that that they don't agree with, that I'm going to destroy their faith. How does that work? Now, I want you to imagine... Okay, so this is, we're not talking about just nice food or unhealthy food or what. We're talking about religious connotations to the food. And so what happens if I, I'm a strong and I keep eating these foods, but my weak brother or sister doesn't agree and thinks it's wrong and dishonoring to God? Now, if I keep doing this and I keep coercing them to follow me and then they start eating, and in their mind they're thinking, oh, I should be doing this. In their heart they're like thinking, I feel like I'm dishonoring God. Can you imagine if that happens not just once, but every time we gather for church, right? Every single week, every single month, after some time, can you see how it erodes their faith? And have a look at verse 23. It's an interesting verse. Paul says, but whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. It's a very unique verse in the Bible. Because the issue we're talking about here isn't actually sin. Eating any food is fine, really. So here, the problem comes in the mind and the heart of the person who doesn't understand that. But because they, they act against what they believe to be right, i.e., they're being unfaithful to their beliefs, to God, they've actually sinned, even though they haven't actually done anything wrong. Because they've done something wrong against what they believe to be true. And if a person continues to go against their conscience in their choices, we we are told here that it is sin and it is destructive. Now, there are things that some of us are convinced of that are matters of Christian freedom, things that we are convinced that we have the right to do. And there are probably many things that you're, you're correct. But what if, what if others don't share the same view as us? What would you be willing and not willing to do when that happens, would you find it hard to give up your rights? Would you find it hard to, to wear that hat into church, even though the old generation sort of disses it? Would you be willing to not go clubbing, right? Because there is a brother or sister there who, you know, says, hey, that's wrong, right? My church teaches that that's sin. Would you be willing not to go through with that tattoo or have that drink of beer 
What would you be willing to do and not do? Now, I think if we take on board what Paul says, if we truly agree that being family is more important than food, I can't see why I would make it, find it hard to not do those things. If I see that the kingdom matters, matter more than food, I don't think I'll find it too hard to forego. If I regard your faith as being more important than anything else, to see you being built up and not torn down, then I don't think I'll find it hard to give up on those things. If we have this mindset, we will find it impossible to do things which will hinder the faith of a brother or sister in Christ. And instead, we will pursue their building up instead. And that's where Paul goes, isn't it? 15.1. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each one of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Kind of common sense, right? Rather than stumbling or hindering a brother or sister, rather than tearing them down, let's instead seek to build them up. Help them to grow in their faith. Right? What can we do? What can we say that can help this weak brother or sister, right? Instead of, I want to do my thing. I want to do my rights. Now, what's the reason for that? Well, Paul goes on, right? Verse 3, For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Right? Jesus Christ was willing to serve us to the point of bearing our reproach, right? Our sin, our God's judgment on himself to build us up in the best and most important way that we can think of, to build us back in our relationship with God. And once again, we see that it's never far away the example of Christ to motivate us to live God's way. To seek to build others up is what is truly Christian. To seek the benefit, the goodness of others is what is truly to be like Christ. And finally, we see Paul say that to build others up is to truly worship to truly worship. It's what Paul prays for in verse 5. Paul says to God, may, may you, the God of endurance and encouragement, grant you, as in Roman Christians, to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he sums it up in verse 7, right? Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. Why? For the glory of God, right? Glory of God just means for the worship of God. Now, verse 8 to 13 just spells out, using all these Old Testament quotations, how Jesus has done the work of welcoming both Jews and Gentiles into God's family. Okay, so we won't get into that. But it's clear from Paul's final instructions here that he ends where he begins. Welcome each other because God has welcomed us. Welcome each other because that's what worship is. As we wrap things up, I want you to reflect on yourself first. Right? Think hard about yourself. So if you can, turn your eyeballs inwards, in a sense. I want you to ask yourself, right? do you see yourself as being a recipient of God's grace and mercy in Christ? My first question I ask you is, right? so simple, yes or no? And... Today's passage is mainly to believers, but if you're an unbeliever, this question is particularly important for you right, to consider that God has indeed put on the welcome mat and opened his front doors, asking you to come in through Christ to believe in him. First question is, do you see yourself as being a recipient of God's amazing grace and mercies in Christ? 
Second question I'll ask you to ask yourself is, have you come to really know and experience God's welcome? If you haven't experienced that, you should feel, I'll, I'll hope for you to feel some sense of peace and, 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 and acceptance. And just because you don't feel it doesn't mean you don't have it. But it's always nice to really be able to sit back, like in a nice chair, you know, and to know, wow, oh, I am welcomed by God. Now I want to ask you, do you see that you now belong to Christ? That he has saved you from your old dead ways of living, and now he's saved you to live for him. In other words, I'm asking you, do you have a genuine desire to worship God? And I hope that even though we don't do it perfectly, you can say yes to that. So firstly, look at yourself. Now, I want you to look around the room. Like literally, I don't just mean it like rhetorically. Look around the room, right? Eye contact is good, okay? Eyeball each other. Okay, this room is a bit harder. The other hall, easier to see, okay? I want to see people in the front like twist. Come on, at least make an effort to look like you're doing it. Jess, come on. <laughs> That's it. Okay. Now, I want you to do that because I want, you to, I, want, I want to ask you, do you believe that every believer here has received the same gospel as you? Which means to say, do you really believe that everyone here has been welcomed by God the way that he has welcomed you? Do you really see that we are family, brothers and sisters in Christ? Do you see that everyone here, with our sinful tendencies and our imperfections, genuinely want to worship God? Now, I want to ask you, if you do see everyone here like that, how, what difference would that make? To our church life. What difference will that make? What difference would it make to be able to walk around and say, I'm a brother uh, to you, you're a sister to me. Uh, we are in God's family together. What difference would it make to be able to walk around and say, man, I'm so glad that in this community, people here are genuine in their faith and that they are fervent to worship Jesus. I'll tell you what difference it will make. Firstly, it will be like a slice of heaven on earth. Maybe you've experienced a bit of that in your fellowship groups and with some friends. But imagine if everyone here had that same commitment, had the same understanding of each other. Can you imagine how difficult it would be for us to say a harsh, condemning word to each other, especially in areas of dispute or non-essential issues? And then can you imagine what it would be like when we discuss our differences? For not all of us will agree. We all have different church traditions, especially in our church. You all come from different places. Maybe, you know, a really strongly charismatic church. Maybe from a very conservative BP church or brethren church. And when we get together like this, can you imagine the kind of discussions we'll have? We'll talk about what we think, but we'll do it with such love and grace and with this welcoming attitude, this embracing attitude, that even when we walk away from that discussion and we don't fully agree or, or don't agree at all about those disputable matters, we will look forward to coming back together again. It's an expression that we are family in Christ, that matters of the kingdom of God, that each other's faith and it being built up would trump any of those minor disagreements. When that happens, whether that's church or fellowship group in the coming weeks, or one-on-ones, or any other Christian gathering, then we will be able to say, as we walk out the door, wasn't worship great today?
was and worship great today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are amazed and we want you to amaze us afresh at just how merciful you have been to us, how gracious and how loving you have been to us through your son Jesus. We need to remember this. We need to feel the weight of that because it is what drives our worship. It is what drives our worship of you and it's what drives the way that we want to relate to each other, not just out in the world, but especially in the church. That is by your mercies alone that we are adopted into your family. We are given the privilege of being brothers and sisters, that we can be part of your kingdom, that we have a faith that will be able to help us to stand before you for all eternity. With that in mind, I pray that you'll help our worship be great, not just this morning, but whenever we gather together as your people. That our worship will be great because of the way that we have this welcoming attitude, the same welcome that you show us. We have the same acceptance, the same pleasure, same joy of being able to be in presence of one another. To know that when someone is a believer, when someone desires to honor you, whether they have a better grasp or a lesser grasp of the truths of these matters that don't really matter, that will prize our relationships in Christ more than anything else. We pray for your help, for we have a tendency to want to tear people down. We have a tendency when we dispute over matters that we also want to dispute people's motivations and character. We pray that you'll give us the wisdom to know how to be able to love and yet be discerning, how to be able to serve and build up even as we disagree. We do this because in all eternity we will share in this kind of worship of you, that we will share in this kind of relationship forever. So please help us to live that out now. Please help us because it is good. It is joyful. And it is such a blessing if our church community were to be like that. We ask all this in Jesus' most precious name.